Welcome to Musicians Versus the World. I am so excited for our guest today. She has done some amazing research and she's here to share it with us. Her name is Dr. Bebe Lin. And Dr. Bebe Lin joins us from Valdosta State University. She is first and foremost dedicated to the development, growth, and success of her students and considers teaching her highest calling and greatest privilege. She was awarded the Steinway and Sons Top Teacher Award in 2017 in recognition of her teaching. Dr. Lin completed her Doctor of Music in Piano Performance and Master of Music in Piano Pedagogy and Performance from the Florida State University. She completed her Bachelor of Music, Summa Cum Laude, in Piano Performance at Arizona State University. Her piano mentors include Heidi Louise Williams and Walter Kosand. Dr. Lin maintains an active performance schedule. She debuted as a soloist with the Masterworks Festival Orchestra at age 17, performing Prokofiev's first piano concerto under the direction of Miriam Burns. She has presented solo and collaborative guest recitals and masterclasses at institutions throughout the United States. As a researcher, Dr. Lin's work on the pedagogical trends in 21st century China was published in the Francis Clark Center for Keyboard Pedagogy Forum. She actively contributes to recent scholarship through performances and presentations at national conferences, including the Sport Professionals Experience and Research Conferences. So Dr. Lin, welcome to Musicians Versus the World. Hi, Christine. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for being interested in my research. Well, your research is just wonderful. I'm so excited to jump into it. But first, I would love to hear a little bit more about you. Like we've said, you do performances, you are a well-respected teacher, you do all this research. Have you always been interested in music or did you just kind of fall into it? I grew up in a family that really loved music and loved the arts. I am Chinese, and um, my story is perhaps a little unusual to American ears, but less unusual to Chinese ears. My parents came to America as graduate students, and uh, my dad came when my mom was pregnant with me. My mom came when I was 13 months old. So that meant that I was left in China with my grandparents, and I was raised by my grandparents. Um, they were working professionals at that point. They were young grandparents. My grandfather was a professor of computers, and my grandmother was a doctor, an, an ENT doctor. They both really loved the arts. My grandfather had a younger sibling, a sister, that uh, was well known for performing in Chinese opera. Just being in that environment, my grandfather was always singing. There was always music in the family. Then coming to America, I came and lived with my mother and she loved music as well. I remember uh, being dragged to every symphony concert, every Broadway <laughs> musical, literally every production that we had in town, we had to go and watch it. And uh, classical music, symphonies, solo piano works were constantly on in, in the home. And so she really nurtured that in me. And when I asked for piano lessons and I initiated that, she was more than happy to provide it with one caveat, which is once I start something, I am not allowed to quit. Nope. <laughs> and so so as, as a young child, I thought, sure, I am not a quitter. Um, of course. Inevitably, every child, um, I am, you know, fairly typical. I asked to quit a few years in, but she insisted. She said, remember that promise you made at the very beginning that if you start something, you will not quit. And so I continued and I I'm so grateful that she was faithful to holding me to that promise 
and um, really helped me to persevere through that period in my life and found teachers that honed my love for music and helped me to see that it was not just work. You know, mm-hmm. you, you get to a certain age and you think that music is simply work, but music is a privilege. Music is an honor. And uh, and so she helped find teachers to to hone that in me. And then, of course, my, my teachers rose to the occasion and really inspired me. And, and that's how I kind of got to where I am today, the, the work of my mother and my teachers. Wow. And now you inspire that in your own students as well. I hope so. <laughs> Maybe they, they will disagree. <laughs> How do you foster that impression that music really is an honor? How do you do that with your students? You know, history teaches a lot about mm-hmm. the struggles that people have gone through in order to be a musician. Uh-huh. There are sacrifices that have been made so that we can have the music that we have today. You know, really inspiring and courageous sacrifices. I I am Chinese. um, Mm -hmm. And so if we even look at the fairly recent history, and we'll start talking about my research in a little bit, but during the Cultural Revolution, it was unsafe for people to study Western classical music. Mm -hmm. Um, there There were musicians who were imprisoned, who were persecuted, musicians who who were killed because they studied Beethoven and Bach and Mozart. You know, I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, and I remember growing up, the conductor of our symphony was a Chinese man. And I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, but I remember hearing his personal story that he was sent to a re-education camp as a musician, and he would study Beethoven symphony scores in secret in the night in the dark. And so, you know, there are people who have sacrificed so much for the privilege, for the honor of being a musician and sharing music with the world. And that touches me deeply. You know, I have, I have not had to make those types of sacrifices. I have not been placed in those positions, but I can certainly be grateful that there are people who love music so deeply that uh, they are willing to put everything in the line because they see that music is good for the soul, is good for humanity, and that one day their trials will be over and they will be able to share music again with the world. So, you know, if you look at the first generation of Chinese that came out of China after China opened, I mean, they all have their stories, but the a lot of the musicians, they came out of great hardship. Mm-hmm. Um, for and they endured, they persevered with the hope that one day they can freely play music. It's just such a marvelous story to to remind ourselves of. That is a beautiful story. That's amazing, and that's one of the reasons that I love your research so much is because I personally don't know much about the musical traditions and the musical um, trends that have been happening in China. Can you explain a little bit about the recent research that you've been doing? 
Yeah, so it started really with my doctoral studies. You know, you you play piano, you give recitals, you take your classes, and then you get towards the end of your studies, and you're like, oh no, I have to do a big research project. I have to write <laughs> a, a document, and what am I going to write about? What can I contribute to the world of scholarship that is interesting and useful and meaningful mm-hmm. to people? You know, I really thought of this research project as a synthesis, as a culmination. Of all that I am as a scholar, as an academic, and as a musician, and you know, one part of who I am is the fact that I am an immigrant and I am a Chinese, and so I started thinking about that and having conversations with my major professor Heidi Williams, and we just thought, you know, something something exciting is happening in China. We see it when it's audition season in America for conservatories. They they are getting or they were. COVID really threw a wrench in everything, but they uh-huh. were getting just a lot of applications from Chinese、um, students, and they were all outstanding. It didn't really matter、uh-huh. what conservatory they were coming from. If they were coming from one, any one of the conservatories in China, they were well prepared. You know,、mm. their their technical ability was just a different level, and they really had their pick of which schools they wanted to go to and what scholarship offers they wanted to accept. And so,、um, started kind of looking at what research was out there, and realized that a lot of it was、uh, newspaper articles, but no formal set research. Right. And, and there were there were some books, but they were not quite as recent. They kind of date back to the '60s to the '80s, and nothing really evaluating what has been happening in the last decade.、Mm-hmm. And so that's how I kind of embarked on that journey to to kind of evaluate what is happening in China that they are producing so many pianists there. Hmm. Hmm. And so that leads you to the research of China and its Gilded Age, and how there are very many similarities between actually China's Gilded Age and America's Gilded Age. And I love this because, you know, with all of the different, you know, different cultures and political things that are happening, it just kind of shows that we're not that different when it comes to music and the love of music and things of that nature. So. Just as a little background, can you explain a little bit the concept of Gilded Age? Sure. When we think of the term Gilded Age, we have to think of the word gilded and where it comes from. It really is Shakespearean in its root. He had talked about in one of his plays something to, if to the effect of gilding gold or painting a lily. And so this idea of something that is beautiful, and then you put something even more beautiful on top of it,、um, that there's there's a, a sense of excess. To it,、mm-hmm. like you don't really need to dress up a lily. You know,、right. a lily in and of itself is already beautiful. Okay, so so when we think about the Gilded Age, what it's really signifying is that's a time of excess. It's a time of political excess,、um, economic excess,、uh, social excess. And so, when we look at, for example, the American Gilded Age,、um, it comes immediately after the American Civil War. There's a lot of infrastructure that is being built, a lot of money that is being spent, and suddenly, when we think of the money that is being spent in terms of building infrastructure,、um, that allows for a lot of 
opportunities for economic growth for someone to go from a lower class to middle class to upper class. You know, we get stories of great developments of individual wealth during that time period. Uh, we think of some of the the music halls that were being built back then. I think, you know, Carnegie Hall was built around then. You know, they, they really just put a lot of money into everything. Everything was over the top. And so when we look at the numbers of music study during the Gilded Age, that was the peak of piano study in America. It was like every household, if they weren't taking music lessons, they hoped to one day be able to take music lessons. Right. And when we look at things like the piano production that was happening for a long time, piano production was happening in Europe. But once the Gilded Age hit in America, piano production in America skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. We can trace that. So when we shift our focus to China, we mm -hmm. see a lot of similarities in that. And the disruption that happened in America was the Civil War, but in China was the Cultural Revolution. They really kind of obliterated a lot of the traditions, a lot of the histories, a lot of the social bonds that had previously existed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, China is an old country, but in a way, in a way, it's a kind of new country. If you go to visit China, you go to Chinese cities, you, re you realize, wow, there are a lot of buildings that have been built in the last two years, five mm -hmm. years, 10 years. And so sure, we have our ancient structures, but mm -hmm. a lot of those ancient structures are actually gone and they've been replaced by a lot of new structures. Okay, mm. so we're starting to see that infrastructure is being built money is being poured in. The ability to climb social class is possible. You can go uh, from someone who is a farmer from the countryside to the top of either the political system or the economic system. And so the opportunity is there. And then when we shift the focus to what is happening in China musically, we start to see oh, in a way, it's very similar to America. If the kid is not taking music lessons. Mm -hmm. The aspiration is that one day the kid can take uh, music lessons, that, that the family can afford. When we look at things like piano production, okay, so before it was produced in Europe, then mm -hmm. during the American Gilded Age, it was produced in America. Well, a huge amount of our piano production internationally has shifted to China. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and all of these companies are building factories in China. It might not be Chinese brands. It might be Japanese brands or German brands, but mm -hmm. they are building factories. And of course, there are Chinese brands. So mm -hmm. they're also um, building pianos. And so there are those types of parallels that we see socially and musically in the Gilded Age for both countries. Well, and so you're seeing because there's so much growth that the quality of music teaching and the quality of students coming from China is really increasing as well? It's high. It's incredibly high. And um, I think that we can see that in the numbers if we examine the percentage of students that are coming from mainland China at some of our top universities. Mm -hmm. they, they make up a fairly significant chunk of their uh, piano studio population. The other instrument that Chinese students really gravitates towards is violin, you know? And, and so the question has to be why those types of instruments, why piano, why violin? And they're really gravitating towards the virtuosity 
of those mm-hmm. instruments. The external visible virtuosity. I mean, I would be the first one to say that something like trumpet or French horn is very virtuosic. Right. And I, I can't even imagine learning something that is so internal. You know, that so much of what happens, happens in your internal muscles. Right. But it's, there's something very external uh, about playing a piano or playing a violin and the, the, the movement of the bow. And so they're gravitating towards that. And because it's the virtuosity of the instrument that is attracting them, there is a drive to meet that virtuosity. You see, mm-hmm. to to rise to the demands because it's that it's that very demand that is attracting them, and so so they work incredibly hard. You know, I was thinking that in a way they have a set of motivations to succeed on a musical instrument that does not necessarily exist for a lot of American students. You know, really? it becomes a symbol of middle class. Okay. Of achievement. Um, it becomes a symbol of social status mm. and economic status. And that can be a great motivator, not only for the student, but for the parents behind the student. You mm. see, parents are so influential. And so if parents are driven to have their child succeed on a certain instrument, they will they will know how to push that student to to achieve that whereas in america a lot of uh, parents you know i hear this frequently um parents will say i just want my child to enjoy it mm-hmm. have fun and so there is not this equating musical achievement to defining social status for the child or for the family and so they have an element of motivation that really cannot be recreated here yeah kind of like the underdog sort of motivation that people tend to have. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If you're coming from behind, then you will work so much harder to achieve, right? Yeah. It's kind of like the second child syndrome. Yeah. (laughs) You're like watching, you're watching your older brother achieve something and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to work twice as hard because I've got to be better than my brother. Right. Right. There's some, something deeply human about, um, the motivational power of competition. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So these students that are coming to America to come to these uh, schools and conservatories, are they then going back to China or are they staying here? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think overall the trend is for a long time, Chinese students came and they intended to stay in America. Uh-huh. America was the dream, was it was the ultimate destination. Um, and, and so those students are, for example, my parents' generation. They, they came with intent. You know, my mother will say that when she first left China, the moment she stepped out of China, she said, I'm never coming back again. Okay. Wow. Because, because life was so difficult right. in China back then. But as China has opened up to the West and really developed in the last two, three decades, the attraction of going back to China has increased. And we see that not just with musicians, but with really students of every discipline, you know, scientists, researchers, um, they all see that there might be more economic opportunities in China rather than in America. And so the draw of going back is greater and greater. And I see more and more students coming to America with the plan of going back rather than staying. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. Was there anything in your research that surprised you that you weren't expecting to find? You know, I went into this research not really with the Gilded Age topic in mind. Mm -hmm. I went into this research because I just wanted to learn about what was happening on the pre-collegiate level in China. Mm -hmm. And it was only through reading and uh, speaking with the teachers and the students that I started to see this parallel percolate. And it it, it probably, you know, for a lot of us, when we start to make these connections, it kind of exists in our subconscious. And one day it just kind of breaks through and you sit down. And I remember sitting down and thinking to myself, something is happening here. There are parallels. And that's when I started digging in, like, you know, what was happening with infrastructure during Gilded Age? What's happening with infrastructure in China? What's happening in wealth accumulation during the Gilded Age? What's happening? And I started like finding the numbers. What's happening in piano building here and there? And suddenly I thought, oh my goodness, this parallel exists. And that was after I had done all of these interviews, spoke to all of these teachers, travel throughout China to do that. And so um, it really had to kind of sit in my mind for a while for it to show up. And when it did show up, it was, I mean, it caused all sorts of goosebumps and excitements. But that was that was actually the most surprising thing, because I did not realize that there was this parallel going into Mm -hmm. this research. Yeah. And I found when I was reading your research about this, um, what I found so interesting was some of the attitudes that Europeans had towards Americans in their Gilded Age are very similar to some of the attitudes that Americans have towards Chinese instrumentalists. This is a quote from your presentation written in 1870. And it says, they may postpone solid everyday excellence to exhibition splendors, festivals and jubilees on an unprecedented scale. Do not change at all the egotism and vanity of musical um, artists. They're catering to low taste by cheap display. And they're announcements, their jealousies of one another to music or even wholly to themselves is the speculating, sordid and money getting fever of the whole world around them that does the mischief and sets the singers at loggerheads, towers the standard of composers and performers and tempts the artist's soul to sell its birthright and become a traveling virtuoso. So even back then in 1870, they were saying they were selling out and just giving these like grand shows just for the money. But they were saying that about American composers and American performers. They weren't saying that about, you know, Asian. Right, exactly. I think that there's something deeply human about our ability to criticize others (laughs) and and our inability to look inward, to evaluate ourselves and our history. And I think that applies to not just humans, but entire societies, right? It's very Mm -hmm. easy to look externally to criticize Um, other cultures or other histories. And it's very difficult to evaluate inwardly because we are, we are blind to our own weaknesses. We are blind to, uh, well, we just don't know, you know, the, I remember one of my teachers once said, the worst thing about being deceived is you don't know that you are deceived. You know, Mm -hmm. the worst thing about having a weakness is you don't realize that you have that weakness. I think that same thing applies. And so, what applies on the human level applies on a cultural level. It's easy for us to look at other cultures and say, oh, we see their deficiencies. Mm-hmm. But it's difficult for us to evaluate our own history and realize, oh, wait, we might have had the same deficiencies once upon a time.
What do you think the main takeaway for performers or teachers today? What's something that we can gain from all of your research that will help us in the future? Yeah, I think it's important to not discount musicians coming from the developing world.、Hmm. And that doesn't just apply to China anymore. You know,、yeah. China is really powerful economically and politically、mm-hmm. nowadays.、Mm-hmm. And so there will be other countries that rise up. History repeats itself. Okay,、mm-hmm. history goes in cycles. What's it? Mark Twain say that、uh, history doesn't repeat, but it certainly rhymes.、Mm-hmm. And so as we look into the future, there will be a new culture. A new country that will raise up a new generation of musicians, and we will think to ourselves, "What does that country have to offer? They are poor. They they do not have a history in classical music." And I think that if we learn a lesson from what has happened in China, is to not look down our noses at the musicians who are coming out of developing countries. And it goes back to what I said. Earlier, it's because they have a source of motivation that、mm-hmm. is irreplaceable, that cannot be reproduced in a already developed country.、Mm-hmm. You see, music means something to them on a social and economic level that we cannot recreate here in America, and maybe one day we will not be able to recreate in China. Too. You know, they will achieve that that level of economic stability where piano is no longer that symbol; it's replaced by something else. And so, one, don't discount、uh, the musicians coming from developing countries. And then, two, I think that it will be increasingly difficult to grow the number of musicians that we have in America. Mm-hmm. And so, what we have learned is to recruit students and musicians from China, but、mm. eventually that will run dry. And and I think COVID has been a kind of game cha- changer in that. You know, a lot of people are afraid to leave China now. They don't really want to come to America, and so the the numbers to watch. For the next few years, in terms of recruitment from China, will be very interesting to see how it impacts impacts our music and specifically piano studios here in America, and whether that reliance on Chinese talent might end up hurting us because we haven't nurtured local talent, domestic talent, in the、mm-hmm. same way. So、mm-hmm. then, the lesson that we must learn, if that happens. If the numbers continue to drop, the drop has been fairly precipitous、okay. uh, across the board from country from every country studying every field. But the fine arts have been really quite severely hit, and Chinese students have seen one of the largest、uh, declines in terms of、mm. international students coming to America. So one of the lessons that we have to learn from this is we must be very intentional about fostering good, solid, quality talent. Here locally, domestically,、um, and so we're not looking for numbers anymore. We must look for depth in our students.、Mm. Do you have any ideas of how we can do that? Because we don't have that same underdog sort of feel anymore. We're pretty well established here in America. What sort of ideas do you have to foster that type of drive and high quality student? You know what I find motivates my students the most is success. 
Mm-hmm. And success is not defined by winning competitions or uh, getting a certificate or getting a trophy. Success is really overcoming something that they had no idea that they could overcome before, mm-hmm. right? And I've been thinking about this. You know, as teachers, we we can, in some ways, see the potential of our, of our students much better than our students can see their own potential. Right? Why is that? It's because I've met a lot more nine-year-olds, and I've watched them go from nine to ten, and I know what they can do in that age gap than most of my nine-year-olds have seen. You know, they right. haven't traced that development, so they haven't done that analysis to think where I am now and where I am going, or what my teacher thinks I am going to be able to do. That is possible. So we as teachers must believe that that's possible for our students. We must let them know that that's possible, and we also must give them the tools to achieve that potential. And that tool, unfortunately, there is no great secret to it. It's simply hard work. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, recently, uh, I had a student that showed up to a lesson. Wonderful student. I love him to pieces. He's 10 years old mm-hmm. and he he's very consistent about practicing. You know, he does a solid hour every day. So mm-hmm. most teachers would be happy with that. Yes. Uh-huh. And he shows up to the lesson and he plays the same old, same old thing that he's played before. And nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. And I told him, you are better than this. Mm-hmm. You don't delay your struggle of learning new portions to your piece. Do mm-hmm. not procrastinate on that challenge. Confront that challenge. See what you are capable of. Okay. And so, and so I, you know, I speak to all of my students as if they are adults. Mm-hmm. I treat them as adults. I expect them to mature into adults. And so I want them to practice learning responsibility, learning the cost of procrastination. I said, this is the cost of your procrastination. It just means that next week you're going to have double the amount because I'm not lowering my expectations for you. I know what you could have achieved this week. I know what you can achieve in the next week. And now you just have to do a double dose of the work because Mm -hmm. you delayed in confronting new sections of your music. And uh, several days later, his mom texted me and said, Uh He was on his fourth hour of practicing that day. Oh my goodness! So that, oh my goodness, that might seem a little excessive, but then no, even, I think that's amazing. Yeah, even <laughs> yesterday, she just texted me and said he had finished math and uh, that he was not particularly enjoying math, and mm-hmm. asked his mom if he could go play piano instead. Aww. And then he said, "I would rather practice ten hours of piano than do another minute of math." Oh my goodness. But it's that? because he had shown up to his lesson and and then he had done great. He had done well. And when I say that he has done well, I do not lie to him. When I say this is a great lesson, you you have met my expectation. You have done a good job. He knows that I am not just saying filler words. I yeah. really mean it. And so he has succeeded. And mm-hmm. I have shown him the tools of success, doing what is difficult, being diligent and not procrastinating on the hard things. And so it doesn't matter to me whether or not he ends up be, becoming a professional musician, but I mm-hmm. guarantee you, I'm fairly confident on this, that he will be a great appreciator of musicians and great appreciator of music in his future. Mm. So 
So what is next for your research? Well, you know, there are always pieces that need to be learned. Uh-huh. <laughs> you can learn recital <laughs> programs faster. So so there, there are always things I need to practice. Um, yes. I think the main focus of, of my projects right now, one is the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast mm-hmm. that I've been hosting. And um, it's... It's very low key, but it's been a lot of fun. And I've been speaking with music teachers around Georgia. And the other thing I mentioned earlier is I think it would be really interesting to see the effects of COVID mm-hmm. on um, international student recruitment into the future, especially at the upper echelon of music study, the elite conservatories and universities that have recruited a lot of Chinese students. And ask ourselves, are they able to be as successful now during COVID Mm -hmm. um, as they were before um, pre-COVID? I think that will be uh, an eye-opening investigation. That would be interesting because I know, speaking with some of my professor friends, um, that there have been a lot of students that are overseas that have done everything virtually all throughout COVID. So they've been doing their bachelor's and master's degree completely online. And it would be very interesting to see how their outcomes have become. Yeah. I will just say that on a personal level, you know, I I still have family back home. I speak regularly with my grandma and uh, my my grandma comes to visit me every so often and she'll stay for long stretches of time, but she's really concerned about COVID. And so mm-hmm. she has, she really has no interest in returning to the States. And um, she, she kind of voices that on behalf of friends that she knows, you know, they have grandkids who really don't want to leave the country anymore, mm-hmm. either to go to, to come to America or to go to Europe or Australia. And those mm-hmm. are actually places that have depended a lot on international Chinese students, yes. Australia, especially because it's on that hemisphere. So yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's going to be an interesting question to observe. Yes. Well, when you get those results, we'll have to have you come back and tell us about it. Sure. Sure. Yeah, that would be great. What's something that you've learned on your podcast? What's like the most interesting thing that's happened in your discussions? Oh, there have been so many really wonderful stories. You know, we think about Georgia Music Teachers Association and we think that these teachers are Georgia from Georgia, but Uh actually the the body is very diverse. Many of them come from other states. Many of them come from other countries. Mm -hmm. And so their their stories are really unique. And I've really enjoyed the diversity of uh, of teachers that I've been able to speak with and, and their experiences. So what is the title of your podcast? Georgia Music Teachers Association. Just perfect. The GMTA. Fairly perfect. Yeah. Okay. And we'll have a link to that in our show notes. So anybody who's interested, it's a really, really fun podcast. And your guests are just really interesting with all of their stories. And you learn so much from it. And you do such a great job of hosting and talking with them. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So we'll put a, I'll definitely put a link to that and put a link to um, research and anything if people are more interested in this topic. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming here. My last question is what advice do you have if there is somebody out there that wants to do what you're doing and wants to be a professional musician and make their life dedicated to it? What advice would you give them? Thank you so much for asking me this question. I am infamous among my friends for giving unsolicited advice. So (laughs) soliciting advice from me is just um, fulfilling my dreams. Um, I think it goes back to what, what my mother told me at the very beginning of my studies, which is 
um, don't quit. Hmm. And I've really developed that attitude throughout my whole life. And it comes down to this. People quit because they're afraid of failing. Mm-hmm. And I just decided, I, re- I just remember as a middle schooler deciding that I would rather be a failure than a quitter. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I am not athletic at all. In middle school, I had my best friend told me that she wanted to run track and she didn't want to run track alone. And so she dragged me and we joined the middle school track team. And we were always the last, you know, two girls running behind these <laughs> other runners that were fantastic. And I remember thinking I could quit or I can just be so bad that I am kicked off the team. (laughs) Which one would I prefer? And I remember deciding I am going to just keep showing up to practice until I am kicked off the team. And I got kicked off the team. And I I was so happy to be kicked off the team. I was waiting for that moment because I didn't want to quit. That's been my attitude for just about everything because I find that in other things, if I quit when I want to. A Mm -hmm. lot of times that moment of quitting comes right before my moment of success. Mm. So I must persevere past my desire of wanting to quit in order to taste any, any fruits of success. Mm -hmm. I just decided, you know, I would rather have people fail me. I would rather be embarrassed. I would rather be kicked off the team, be rejected Mm -hmm. than to voluntarily quit. Mm-hmm. And that has worked out really well for me in life. <laughs> so. so just don't quit. Just keep working on it. Yes. Don't quit. Don't quit. Yes. Yep. And that music is a privilege. Yes. I love that. I love that. I absolutely love that. Well, Dr. Lin, thank you so much. Thank you for joining me and sharing your really interesting research and your advice and your optimism and enthusiasm. I just appreciate you so much. Thanks for making the time to come talk with me. Thank you. This conversation has been fun for me. And thank you for taking the time to hear me. Musicians versus the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. A very special thank you to Dr. Bebe Lin for sharing her research and her insights with us today. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Lin or her research, we will have her full biography as well as links to her research and her podcast, Georgia Music Teachers Association, on our website, frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world. Musicians versus the world is hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith, and our producer today is Russ Wilkes. Throughout today's episode, you heard portions of Robert Schumann's Piano Sonata Opus 11, performed by Dr. Lin and shared with permission. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out on any future conversations. And if you want to help us reach more people that may be interested in today's topic, please share this episode with them or leave us a nice review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or send us an email at info at As always, thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Music